Thank you, Pastor Stephen. Well, good morning, church. We will continue with Romans 11. And today we're going to focus just on verses 11 through 36 of this remarkable chapter. But I want to begin by talking about something we all know and love, the Kansas City Chiefs. I know everyone here is a Chiefs fan. And I have grown up, I have grown up as a Chiefs fan. I still have a, one of those kids lockers that's a Chiefs locker. Um, I still have it. I mean, it's at my parents' house because Sarah Beth isn't too keen on it being in ours, but I still have it. Now, whether it's the Chiefs or another team, there's a moment in each game when it seems like the end. An interception is thrown. A fumble is made. A touchdown let through. And you think, gosh, that's it. They missed their chance. There's no coming back. They've stumbled and they're not going to get up. And after chapter 10 of Romans last week, you might be tempted to think something similar about Israel. I'm speaking here of them collectively. But after last week, you might be tempted to think that their rejection of the Messiah is the final straw, the end of the game. Well, this is essentially the question Paul asks in verse 11, which sets the direction of our passage. Did Israel stumble so that they couldn't get up? Is it permanent? Did they miss their chance? Is it game over? This is the last question Paul is going to ask about God's promise toward the Jews. And here we find God is not done with Israel. God's not done is the final answer to the question that's dominated chapters 9 through 11. Has God's word failed? No. Because God isn't done with Israel. But today we also find that this truth has significant implications for us. Implications for how we see Israel, ourselves, and God. I mean, just look quickly at verse 13. Gentiles, he's speaking to Gentiles, they are the intended audience For this teaching about God's plan for the Jews. Because as we'll see in our passage, Gentiles were becoming prideful. They seemed to think that Israel had missed their chance and that they had replaced them. But Paul wants to say, you've got it all wrong. God's not done. Paul is talking to Gentiles, which means he's talking to most of us. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, can we be done with all this stuff about the Jewish people? Know that Paul is writing to you. God is not done with Israel. And this truth impacts how we think about Israel and ourselves, but most importantly, how we think about God. It's essentially where our passage ends, with a doxology of praise to God's inscrutable plans. Throughout our passage, Paul is building to this idea that God's plans are bigger, they're more wonderful than we could possibly imagine. Now, I admit chapter 11 is quite difficult. So many details and controversies. Somehow I got stuck with Romans 7 and 11. (laughs) There's a lot more that could be said in this passage. I'm certain that I will confuse some uh, and possibly upset others. Um, But in the midst of all the details and the controversy, I pray, I do, I pray that you will allow God's plan to instill in you humility And drive you to praise God for who he is and for his overwhelming mercy toward us. 
As we go through this passage and learn that God's not done, I want to give you some anchors for walking through the text. There's going to be four of them, four anchors. We're going to look at a plan, a warning, a mystery, and a praise. But first I want to read it all together, and it's a long one. So if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans 11, 11 through 36. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember... It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
So we jumped over the first 10 verses, but I do want you to see how they set the stage for this passage. In verses 1 through 10, Paul is, he's summarizing chapters 9 and 10. He's telling us that Israel's rejection was not total. God has been gracious to save a remnant, though the rest have, been, have stumbled and been hardened. This remnant includes Paul himself. And, you know, it's bigger than we think, but still small overall. And the question about those who have stumbled still lingers. Remember what we learned last week. They had stumbled over Christ because they were trying to attain a righteousness by works. So in verse 11, Paul asks, did they stumble in order that they might fall? We know rejection is not total. But here he asks, is rejection final? Is their rejection final? And Paul says, no way. In fact, it's all according to plan. It might seem harsh to our modern ears, but Israel's hardening, their stumbling was for a purpose. And we see that plan here in these verses. In fact, everything that's happened with the gospel is part of God's sovereign plan. His plan is better than anything that we can imagine. And in these verses, Paul goes over God's plan more than once, right? So he, he's going to even relate it to his own role in this plan. So it can sound repetitive to us. But we notice there are several stages that follow after one another. You know, it's sort of like dominoes. Not the pizza, but the game. And, and not actually the game, but kind of just what you do with dominoes. So one domino causes the next to fall, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so the Jews stumbling leads to Gentile salvation, which brings the Israelites back, which leads to blessings for the whole world. These are the stages that we see here, but let's look at them one at a time. In the first domino, Israel stumbled or transgressed, but it meant salvation for the Gentiles. As a church, we went through Acts a few years ago, and this is what you find in Acts over and over and over. It's all over the place. But Acts 13, 44 through 46 gives us a good picture. So I put it on the screen so we could read it together. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, We are turning to the Gentiles. You see here that the Jews, according to Paul, as the word was going out, they turned aside. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And so Paul took the the word of God, the gospel, to the Gentiles. I mean, it's really quite remarkable that according to God's plan, the rejection of the Jews to the gospel pushed the gospel out to a people who weren't even looking for it. Israel's stumbling had a purpose had a purpose in bringing salvation to Gentiles, to people like me and you. But the dominoes aren't done. In the second domino, the Gentile salvation is meant to draw Israelites back to salvation. You see, God's not done with Israel. Well, how does this happen? Verses 11 and 14 say they will become jealous of the believing Gentiles. Now, there's a bad kind of jealousy. That's actually the jealousy that's in this passage here. But jealousy is a bad thing. We all know that. But jealousy is bad when it means you're envious of what other people have. I mean, if we just think half the songs on the radio are about this kind of jealousy, 
But there is a sort of jealousy that's good as well. John Stott says, not all jealousy is tainted with selfishness. It's not all a desire to take from someone else, but the desire for something that is good in and of itself, then that's a right desire, a good jealousy. Deuteronomy 32 actually foreshadows this very event, that the Jews will stray and that God will make them jealous by bringing blessings to the nations. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what Paul believes is happening. That, 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 the, that the Jewish people would see how the Gentiles have received grace. They would see how they know God. How they have fellowship with one another in the church and with God. And it would draw them back. Now, let's pause just for a moment. I want you to take that in. Because this should stir in us a desire to want to live the sort of life that makes other people jealous. Not the jealousy people feel by looking at your Instagram, but a jealousy for life with God. A jealousy for life with God. Friends, are we creating the sort of community that is attractive? That is the fulfillment of God's design? I mean, just imagine, would a devout Jew, or any unbeliever for that matter, look at our church and be jealous? To be drawn to the riches of the gospel and this gospel community. Alan Kreider is a scholar who writes about the early church. And in his book, he notes that in the first couple centuries, Christians rarely grew because they won a bunch of arguments. Instead, they grew because their habitual behavior was distinctive and intriguing. Their habitual behavior, their way of life, how they lived together, how they walked through difficulties and joys. It drew people in. Their outlook on life, the way they operated in the world, it drew people in. We learned last week that evangelism requires words. Here we see that the way we live draws people in and helps the words we speak make sense. Because when we live lives contrary to the words we profess, Our words fall flat on the ground. Part of God's salvation, part of God's plan of salvation is that we would live lives that draw Jews as well as unbelievers to Christ. But that's not the last domino. In the third domino, we see in verse 12, the inclusion of the Jewish people means overflowing blessings. Overflowing blessings. This stage is situated sometime in the future But Paul reasons that if the Jewish rejection brought good things to the Gentiles, how much more when they come in? Their salvation must be blessings untold. Nothing short of eternal life. That when the full number of the elect Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, verse 15 says that the greatest thing that could ever happen will come. Resurrection from the dead. New heavens and new earth. This is God's massive plan. But this plan prompts Paul to add a warning. A warning. We saw in verse 13 that Paul has been addressing us Gentiles because some of the Gentiles had started being prideful over the Jews, thinking they had replaced them. And so Paul uses this metaphor of an olive tree 
to warn and correct the Gentiles in the church who were starting to feel this way, starting to get a little prideful over others in the body. In verse 18, he says, do not be arrogant. In verse 20, he says, don't be proud, but fear. These are the main commands in this whole passage. And in a passage filled with controversy, this is clear and emphasized. And so we want to pay attention. Now, those of you that know me know that I'm terrible at growing plants. We have a young tree in our yard that's on its last limb. But, but you don't need to be an expert to understand the divine horticulture of this passage. There are essentially three parts. The root, which is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The natural branches, which are the physical descendants of Abraham. And the wild olive shoots, which are most of us, Gentile believers. And Paul makes four points about this tree meant to humble the arrogant and prideful Gentiles. The first point in verse 18, you don't support the root, the root supports you. This is the reason we should not be arrogant. Paul says, you've got to know, at the root of it, Christianity is thoroughly Jewish. We rely on the Jewish scriptures. We consider Abraham our father, not by blood, but by faith. I mean, it seems basic, but the work of God did not begin with you. But with the patriarchs and before. Don't think you are superior to the Jews because you actually rely on them. In fact, their history is your history. Paul continues this with the second point, that the Gentiles were grafted into the people by faith. Paul is saying, you are not more deserving than the branches that were cut off. They broke off because of unbelief. But you stand by faith. Paul is countering the idea that Gentiles or the church replace Israel. Rather, it fulfills Israel. It fulfills it. Israel's history becomes the church's history. And so true Israel is both a reduction and an expansion. A reduction to the remnant of those ethnic Jews who believe and an expansion to the Gentiles who believe through faith. So he says, do not be proud or think too highly of yourself, but rather fear. Humble yourself before God, the one who grafts and who breaks off. That's the third point. Some were broken off. Some of the Israelites were broken off because of unbelief. And he warns them that if they boast... If they don't continue in faith, they might not be spared either. He then gives this great summary statement in verse 22. Consider the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. I know it sounds harsh to our modern ears. But you've got to know, God is not Santa Claus. He's not just going around holly and jolly. He's kind, unfathomably kind. I mean, that's where Paul's going, that his mercy is wider than you can imagine, but also severe. Those who boast and believe they're better than others, they should be warned. Those who've received mercy but don't act mercifully towards others, questions whether they know God's mercy in the first place. Now, some have taken this to mean that you can lose your salvation. 
But in chapter 8, we read that nothing can take it away. So I think what we have here is another one of those, I don't know, what I just call paradoxes of the faith, of salvation. It's like Philippians 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God's done it, but we still have a calling to work it out. I mean, it is true that God will hold on to those who are truly his. We can have assurance in this life of God's salvation. But from a human perspective, from, from as though you were looking at an actual tree, we need to be challenged to remain humble and know our utter dependence on God. Our utter dependence on God. The fourth, point, the fourth point is this. Don't give up on the Jews. In verses 23 and 24, we are to hope for the natural branches to be regrafted in. Paul is going to expand on this point later, so I'll, I'll save that for, for in a little bit. But each of these, what we need to see is that each of these four points are meant to humble the Gentile believers toward others. Meant to humble us. Since pride and arrogance have no place in the Christian faith. And on the one hand, we should read this as a warning against any kind of anti-Semitism. I mean, it is remarkable, but just a cursory look at history shows how the children of Abraham have experienced an inordinate amount of animosity and hatred. They have been persecuted throughout history, not just through war, but in everyday occurrences. Anti-Semitism still rears its ugly head. In recent days, we've seen a ton of it on our news and our communities. But according to the Bible, there's no biblical reason that justifies it. In fact, here Paul is explicitly against it. Anti-Semitism is against God's plan. It's like cutting at the root that supports you. And it is a calling for us to work against against it in the church and in the wider world. Now, you have to know that this, of course, this doesn't mean some blind allegiance to the Jewish people. It doesn't mean that. At many times throughout history, God disciplined them in different ways. So it's not a, it's not a blind allegiance. But it is at minimum that we should have an honoring disposition towards them. At minimum. But you know, Paul's words are broader than this as well. Christians should flee all forms of pride that would exalt ourselves over others to consider other people as less worthy or less deserving. For the ancients, pride was, was the fountain of all vices. It corrupts the heart and the mind and leads towards all kinds of sin. But grace is the antithesis of pride. By definition, grace states we receive more than we deserve We are called to live lives of humility and grace. And that is Paul's point here. This passage is not only a challenge to the original readers, but a challenge for us. Flee pride. Humble yourself. But he even tells us how we do it. The main way we do this is to consider the ways we are dependent on others. Because friends, the truth is, you did not get to where you are on your own. Think back on your life. Think back on those that you were dependent on, the opportunities you were dependent on, the people who have gone before us, those who gave us an opportunity, 
who are patient with us. We are dependent on others. And acknowledging that, remembering that, helps to humble us. Helps to humble us. Because ultimately we are dependent on God's mercy. Which is the very place Paul takes this next section of, of his passage. We've seen a plan, we've seen a warning, and now a mystery. A mystery. Paul returns to the idea of Israel being saved, which he's building on this imagery of the, of the branches that were cut off being regrafted back on in verses 22 and, 23 and 24. And then in verse 25, Paul reveals a mystery that's meant to help Gentiles not be conceited, which is to have a pride in our own human wisdom and knowledge. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean? It's ironic that something Paul meant to be helpful has become one of the most controversial verses. You have to think, Paul didn't want us to have pride in human wisdom, so he just gave us something really confusing. (laughs) But actually, the point, I hope that you'll see, is to reveal the astounding mercy of God. That's where this whole passage is going. So as we try to understand this passage, I want to ask three questions of uh, of this uh, mystery we just read. First, who is all Israel? There are a couple options. Uh, John Calvin believed that all Israel meant some combination of elect Jews and Gentile believers, right, together. And this view makes a lot of sense. I admit, I find it very persuasive. Paul has been saying that not all Israel is Israel, right? Uh, And Gentiles are grafted into Israel. Thus, Israel means Jews and Gentiles together, true Israel. And that's true, but the problem is that in this passage... When Paul talks about Israel, he means ethnic Israel, all right? So that's probably not the best option. Sorry, John Calvin, on Reformation Day. (laughs) The most reasonable idea is that all Israel is referring to the ethnic Jews, but not every single one of them. I call this all but not every, all right? Paul is talking about groups of people here. We've got to recognize that. It's like if I said all the church went to the potluck or the whole school showed up to the game. Or all the church is Chiefs fans. Do I mean every single person? No. But I mean enough came, enough were there, that it was as though the whole group was there. This is a super common way for, for scriptures to use language. All, but not every. So all means a lot of Israelites. But more than just the remnant. Such that it represents the whole ethnic group. The second question is this, how will they be saved? And I want to mention this simply because there is an idea out there that the Jews will have some other way to salvation based on the Mosaic Covenant or something like that. But that just can't be true. I mean, that would contradict not only chapter 10, but everything Paul's ever said everywhere. All right. Therefore, it must be talking about a large number of Jews turning to faith in Christ. But when? When? And that's the third question, I think, the most difficult. I mean, there's a sense in which Paul is talking about Jews throughout history who turn to faith in Christ and are regrafted in, and just an accumulation of that throughout history. People like himself. But I think Paul has something else in mind as well. 
Much of it depends on whether this Old Testament quotation, it's really a compilation of Old Testament texts, is talking about Christ's first coming or second coming. John Calvin thought it was first coming, and and that, that could be it. But the thrust of the passage is looking to the future, right? I mean, notice what he says, until the fullness, until the fullness of the Gentiles. There, there is now a partial hardening, which anticipates something different in the future. He's looking to something in the future. So in this passage, I think Paul is talking about a time in the future related to Christ's second coming, where there will be a large turning of Jews to faith in Christ, that their hardening will be lifted and their hearts will be softened to confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul then turns in verse 28 to consider how this shapes our relationship to the ethnic Jews. And, you know, it's complicated. Even though they're hostile to the gospel, God loves them because of his promises to the patriarchs. These are promises that cannot be revoked or discarded, right? God's word does not fail. His promises do not fall flat. And so we have a mixed disposition disposition towards them. But where Paul goes, where Paul is going with this in the rest of this in the rest of this section, is to say that our main disposition toward ethnic Jews is chiefly evangelistic. All right? That verse 28 doesn't just stop there, but continues on through 32. And all of this is talking about. Okay, if, the, if God is going to save the Jews, if that's how his work, if he's not done, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our disposition towards them? Yes, they're enemies of the gospel, but love because of the elect, the patriarchs. But he continues from there. He continues from there. That our main disposition towards them is evangelistic. Everything else is secondary. Remember Paul's prayer, right? Early in chapter 10, that they would be saved. His prayer and his heart's desire is for them to be saved. And that is where he's going. There's a lot more detail we could discuss, but we can't lose sight of where Paul is going, which is God's mercy. Whatever you think this passage means, it means that God's people will be beneficiaries of his mercy. And here in verse 30 through 32, we really have the climax of this mystery, uh, this mystery of mercy, that God desires to show mercy. So at the end of the day, the Jewish unbeliever is to be viewed with hope and mission. Look with me at verse 30. Let's just walk through some of this. Here we have, here it's like the Christians thinking, okay, I once disobeyed God, but now here I am a believer since the gospel went beyond, beyond the Israelites. All right. So verse 31, if God can reach me with his mercy, despite my disobedience, how much more do you think? Can God use my faith or the mercy that has been shown to me as a way to reach the disobedient Jews. He's going back to what we talked about in the first part of this passage. How are they going to be saved? And what he reasons is that God is using the mercy that he has given to Gentiles as a way to draw the Jews back. And so verse 32 concludes this passage and really concludes what Paul has been trying to get across since chapter 9. God has consigned all to disobedience. What is that? He's, he's charged everyone with disobedience, right? He's, he considers everyone as disobedient. Remember the beginning of Romans? None see God. No, not one. None are righteous. And in that way, he may have mercy on all. Now, some have mistakenly read this as universal salvation. But again, 
that, that just it contradicts everything Paul has talked about. There is salvation and a damnation. But what Paul means, what he meant in chapter 10, he means what he meant then, that mercy is for all, without distinction. Jews and Gentiles, you and me, we are all dependent on God's mercy. And that mercy is for anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord. Friend, do you know that God has worked through Jesus' death and resurrection to show you mercy? To cleanse your disobedience. God desires to show you mercy if you will just receive it. And his prayer is that this mercy shown to you would not stop with you, but that it would have an effect beyond you to draw even more unto himself, to draw even more to experience his mercy and kindness. So, so far we've seen a plan, a warning, a mystery, but when we really grasp the mystery of this mercy, it ultimately leads to praise. It ultimately leads to praise. In this whole plan of salvation history, God himself is at the center of it all. At the end of the day, I think Paul was, he was still kind of contemplating this mystery, but he was so caught up in it, the mystery of of God's mercy towards both Jews and Gentiles, he just couldn't help but bow down in praise. And he invites us to do the same. Look at these verses with me as they lead us to praise of God. In verse 33, Paul says that God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge are deep. God's plans and judgments are unsearchable. There's not an act of human wisdom that will ever get you to know what God knows in full. It's too deep. It's too broad. It's too massive. His ways are inscrutable, the scripture says. They are impossible to understand or comprehend in full. Paul is saying, you don't have to know everything to praise God. Now, this isn't anti-intellectualism, as though you don't need to think, you just need to praise God. This is humility. We are created to know and to seek God in ever-increasing ways. Hopefully that's what we're doing now, what we continue to do each Sunday and throughout the week as we come to God's Word to learn more about Him and more about His plan, not in full, but in part. But at the end of the day, God is far bigger than us. God is far bigger than us. Isn't this the problem the Gentiles had? I mean, they saw the mass rejection of the Jews uh, to Christ, and they thought they had it figured out, that God's mercy was done with them, that that God's mercy was beyond them. But they were wrong. God's not done with Israel. I mean, consider how easy it is for us to presume to know what God is up to. I mean, many use this passage to presume to know exactly what God is going to do. And yet Paul ends the passage telling us, be careful. Be careful. This is a dangerous trap. God's ways are inscrutable. Paul proves this point by quoting from Isaiah and Job. He he quotes two guys who were looking around wondering what's going on both one nationally and one personally, right? What's going on? Why have the Jews been dispersed? Or Job, why has this happened to me? 
Two guys who were wondering, what is God doing? When they tried to figure it out on their own, wisdom, they were lost. But they learned to trust God's plan. They learned to see that I I can't counsel God. Who am I to counsel God? They learned to see that I don't bring some wage. I don't earn some wage from God. Everything from him is a gift. He doesn't need anything from us. But in his great mercy, he is willing to dispense his grace to us. In his mercy and his blessings. They learn to trust God's plan. And if you're like me, you wonder what is going on in the world. You look around and the world seems to be in turmoil. At a global level, it just, everything seems in chaos. You wonder where is it all going? And even closer to home, you may be thinking, why is God doing what he's doing? Why do friends suffer? Why do you lose a job? Why is your marriage struggling? None of us can presume to know everything about God's plan. There's no perfect one-to-one correlation, cause and effect. But what I do know is this, that God's not done. He's not done with Israel and he's not done with any of us. Whatever he's doing, we find that it is to magnify his mercy and it's for his glory and that it works together for the good of those who have been called, who believe, called according to his purposes. We praise and worship God because all of it is in his hands. At the end of the day, all of it is in his hands. Paul ends, this wonder, Paul ends with this wonderful doctrine that capstones chapters 9 through 11. I mean, it could capstone verses one through 11, chapters 1 through 11. That all things, all things are through God. Look with me at verse 36. He says, from him are all things. God is the creator of everything that's ever existed in heaven and on earth. Nothing comes into existence except by his hand. Through him are all things. He is the one who sustains and directs everything. He doesn't need anything from us, but yet we need, our very, we need him for our very breath, our very life. He is sovereign over us and everything about us. And to him are all things. Friends, God is in the business of reconciling the world to himself, bringing all things under him. All things find their purpose in union with God through Christ. And it's why Paul can say to him, be the glory forever. Because all things, all plans, bow before God's plan. To God be glory forever. For God is more wondrous and his plan is greater and bigger than we could ever imagine. And it will surprise us in new ways. There are things we'll see that make sense and there are things that will surprise us. But may we join Paul in humbly submitting our own thoughts and wisdom to God and his designs. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. 
Father, thank you for your mercy to us. That without it, we would be lost. We pray that your mercy would so enrapture us, that it would go beyond us. We pray that your mercy through us would be communicated to the world. And particularly to to the Jewish people. That they would be called back to you. Father, we pray that at the end of the day, we would submit all our thoughts and plans and ideas to you, to you and your ways, to continue to come back to your word. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to be humble before you. In Christ I pray. Amen.